This is the word of the Lord. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to your shining brightness. Raise your eyes and look around. They all gather and come to you. Your sons will come from far away and your daughters on the hips of nursing mothers. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will tremble and rejoice because the riches of the sea will become yours and the wealth of the nations will come to you. Amen. Thanks, Bonnie. Good morning, church family. How's everybody doing? Good to see you. If you're new, uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I would just like to thank uh, Jim for sharing that little bit of an update on the prayer walk yesterday. You know, what's weird is I was by myself. I didn't have a a prayer walking partner. And I didn't have these cool conversations and interactions. In fact, not once, but twice, I was walking down the sidewalk and someone was coming towards me and they went to the exact opposite (laughs) side of the street. I'm like, what is the deal here? Like, so... Anyways, nations were not drawn to my light on the prayer walk yesterday. Uh, we are, uh, real quickly, I want to make a comment before we dive into our teaching for today. Today is what is known as Pentecost Sunday. And uh, Pentecost Sunday, uh, you might be thinking Pentecostalism, which is why I do have the tambourine here, actually. And Pete and I have been fighting over the tambourine all morning. He won at the 9 a.m. service. But if you hear tambourine, exuberant tambourine playing here a little bit later, you'll know that I have defeated Pete uh, at the end here. But actually, Pentecost Sunday does not have to do with Pentecostal denomination specifically. It's a day that we, in the church, we set aside to remember when God poured out his Holy Spirit uh, at the temple in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And actually, Pentecost is the Greek name for the Jewish festival of Shavuot. Pentecost didn't begin at Acts chapter 2. In fact, Acts chapter 2, and and that whole thing is looking back on a very ancient celebration where the Lord gave the law on Mount Sinai to Moses and the people of Israel. And our friend, my, my good friend, Rabbi Matt Rosenberg, he recently released his book called Jesus Never Said Anything New. And, uh, I actually got to endorse it. I'm right there on the first page. So if you buy a copy and you want me to sign the endorsement, I'll do that for you. So um, <laughs> I've been practicing that joke. So here's what Rabbi Matt says to, to help us understand this. He says, Shavuot, according to Jewish tradition, is the day that Moses received the Torah on Mount Sinai. The disciples, therefore, understood that what happened to them in Acts chapter 2 was equal in importance to what happened on Mount Sinai. Not new, not better, not a mulligan, not a move away from the Jewish people or national Israel, but rather the fulfillment of God's promises to the Jewish people that opened the doors for Gentiles to come to Yeshua, to Jesus. So if you're here today and you're part of the family of God, if you've received salvation by faith alone, because of God's grace alone, uh, through Jesus, and you're not Jewish, then we have those disciples to thank who first received the Spirit on that Pentecost Sunday, that celebration of Shavuot, and we here get to benefit from them. And and here's the point of application that really just kind of stirred my heart last night as I was thinking about gathering here on Pentecost Sunday. Some churches are word people, 
and they love the written word of God, the scriptures, and we think about God giving the, the written word on Mount Sinai. Some churches are spirit churches. Uh, they love to uh, be, to, you know, language like being filled with the spirit or even uh, talking about the prayer walk, like just listening for the direction of the spirit. Like, Lord, would you open up an opportunity for me to talk to somebody or pray with somebody or being directed by the spirit? Friends, we, we don't do it perfectly, but as a church, we endeavor to be both. There should be no fighting between the spirit of God and the word that he inspired to be written. It is two pedals on the same bicycle. And so even today, as we turn our attention to the word of God, I pray that the spirit of God would bring these words to life in our hearts, in our minds, so that we might be convicted of sin. We might see who Jesus is and we might be directed for living holy lives. Amen. So uh, what we're doing, if you're new, we're doing a topical teaching series right now called Things That Are Hard to Do. And we've done this for a few years, uh, just a a few weeks at a time. And we're going to kind of wrap it up this week and next. Next week, we're going to talk about a topic, It's Hard to Break Free from a Habitual Sin. I'm going to deal with subject of addiction. Today, though, we're going to talk about something uh, that was actually suggested by a, a member of the church. It's hard to interact with people of other faiths. It's hard to interact with people of other faiths. And we're going to go through kind of a lot of different scripture, including Isaiah 60. So uh, if you need the notes, they're up on the church's website. But I wonder if you'd pray with me and for me before we dive in here. Lord, I ask and I pray that you would help me to teach only that which is in line with the truth of your word. And Lord, would you fill me with your spirit to communicate the truths of the gospel and the truths about who you are. And Lord, I ask and pray that each one of us right now who is a believer in Jesus, we would be filled afresh with your spirit. On this Pentecost Sunday, we might be reminded that the spirit is given to bring us life and to bring us closer to Jesus. And and God, would you help us to have uh, not only humble hearts, but courageous hearts today. That we might proclaim the truth of the gospel with grace and love and boldness that all comes from your spirit. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. So, quick show of hands. How many of you have ever had that feeling where you're talking with somebody and it comes clear that they believe something very different from you and you just feel that bit of awkwardness? Anybody? You know what I'm talking about? You don't want to step on their toes. You don't want to offend them. We live in such a polarized society where you feel like, man, just to even open up and talk about anything, I might hurt their feelings or they might get mad at me. I think we all kind of know that. Now, there's, there is a historic reason why we, predominantly Americans, I know there's people here from other countries or have moved here, immigrated here from far off places like Canada, but we, we have a historic reason why we are not as good at interacting with people of other faiths. I'll actually even go so far as to say the earliest disciples, the first followers of Jesus, were much better at interacting with people of other faiths than we are as American Christians. Early on in American history, during the colonial period, people were coming from all sorts of European countries and they were you know, conquering and, and colonizing and all this sort of stuff, but there was, there was a mixture of Protestant and uh, Catholic. But by the time of the American Revolution, the English descendant Protestants had pretty much won the day and had forced out the French and Spanish Catholics. So by the time of the American Revolution, only 1% of the people of the United States of America were Catholic. And so, uh, actually even early on, Virginia, the state of Virginia, declared themselves officially Episcopal. That was the official state religion 
of Virginia, whereas Maryland had actually written into law very tolerant sorts of rules. Anybody can be any faith they want. So you come to 1791. We all remember 1791. Some of you were there. I'm just kidding. But they wrote these famous words in our Constitution's Bill of Rights. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I had a conversation uh, a couple of months ago, and I'm going to get to see him again here in June, with a pastor who's from Iran. And Jesus saved him as a Muslim while living in Iran, and he described to me the great links that he went to and the great troubles he went through to gather with other believers to be able to worship Jesus, to open the scriptures. What we are doing right now in the course of human history is nothing short of miraculous, and we should never take it for granted. Amen? I'm very thankful for the Bill of Rights. I'm very thankful for the First Amendment. But there is one little historical problem that makes it hard when it comes for us to interact with people of other faiths. The problem is, is the people who wrote this were all English-descendant Protestants. I just said there was 1% Catholic and like none percent anything else. You were Protestant or you were maybe a deist, which is kind of a, it's just a word that means, yeah, I believe in a God and... It's all kind of cool, man. Stop me if you've heard that one, right? That was, that was the makeup of our founding fathers. Now, in 1850, Catholics started coming to America from Poland, from Ireland, and from Italy. So that between 1850 and 1960, when there was a presidential election between one Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy, guess how many, what the percentage of Americans were Catholic by 1960? 25%. From 1% to 25%. Now, I was not alive for that presidential election. Some of you were, or some of your parents, or maybe your grandparents were, and you talked to people about the 1960 presidential election, and boy, was it contentious. We cannot elect a Catholic to be president. That means the Pope is going to be controlling our president and the Vatican is going to be running our laws and we just defeated Italy in World War II and we can't have a... Well, the tambourine was jingling as I pounded the pulpit. That was cool. I should have just go with it. (laughs) Tambourine solo break real quick, guys, here. This, like, you can talk to people about that. Like, it was so contentious, and we were fighting. As Americans, we were fighting about the idea of having a Catholic president. Now, just time out. We are Protestants. We have some serious theological disagreements with Catholics about matters of faith, but let's just be reminded that this is two flavors of the same religion. It's two flavors of the same belief that, that wherever uh, Catholics hold to the, the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed, like they are Orthodox believing Christians and followers of Jesus. And yet here we are fighting about two different types of Catholicism. Even as re- the point I'm trying to make is even as recently as 1960, which is not that long ago, we were still fighting about how to have different types of Christianity in the public square, much less Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism pantheistic spiritualities, Native American spiritualities, we don't have a good track record in the United States of America to operate where we interact with people who have other sincerely held belief systems and to know how to do it in a way that is honoring to Jesus. We have seen since the 1940s significant amounts of Jewish immigration after World War II and then uh, Jews coming out of the Soviet Union. 
we've seen a, a big rise in people moving, uh, immigrating to the United States from Muslim nations, uh, Arabic nations, Africa, Eastern European. Ironically, even post 9-11, the numbers have really dramatically spiked post 9-11. We've seen a major rise since the 1990s of alternative spirituality, such as Wicca, pantheism, indigenous spirituality, all that in the context of the nuns, the no religion, the no faith, which is now a full 25% of Americans. And I read on a Pew Research Forum thing that in Washington state, it's actually 32%. We're higher than the national average. And you have to know that the majority of that is coming from the Seattle area. So you might have a a 40% chance of interacting with somebody today who's one of these nuns. And I'm going to get back to that in just a little bit here. Here's the point, though. Here's the point. We need to learn how to interact with people who have sincerely held other religious faith because God loves them God wants them to come to a saving knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. And we, the church, the people of God, are his chosen vehicle to interact with them for his glory and to bring the message of the gospel to them. God's people love people of other faiths because of Jesus. God's people love people of other faiths because of Jesus. Now, I want to help us be grounded in the story. Like, this is not just... Let's just get a bunch of propositions right. I want us to be grounded in the story of the gospel. And so if you'll allow me just to kind of walk you through the entire Bible in the next six and a half hours, uh, I want to walk you through this. That was a joke, but don't tempt me. I want to walk you through some things that are really important to think about as we talk about interacting with people of other faiths. The first one is this. God created all of the nations of the world. This is part of his plan. This is part of his good plan for humanity. What did God say to the man and the woman after he created them in Genesis chapter 1? He says, be fruitful, multiply, and what? The earth. Fill. Fill the earth. That it is part of God's good design. It is part of God's good plan to create a humanity that is incredibly diverse. We, we believe that people with every language, with every skin color, with every uh, ethnic background are created in the image and likeness of God. And that is part of his good plan. Is it not? Acts chapter 17, which I will refer to a good number of times today because there's a lot in Acts 17 that helps inform interacting with other religions. But when the apostle Paul was in Athens, he's interacting with people that are not Jewish. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't even believe in the God of Israel. And he's interacting with them and he's, he's telling the story. He says, look, from one man, God has made every nationality to live over the whole earth. And he has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. It's God's good plan to have a diverse humanity. But you also might remember in the storyline of Genesis, when you get to Genesis chapter 11, the people gathered together and they say, no, we don't want to scatter throughout the world. In fact, they said, let's all come together, like the Beatles said, come together right now and let's build a tower and we're going to be like God. We're going to ascend to the heavens. So what does God do? What does God, uh, how does God respond to that uh, huddling together impulse of sinful humanity? It says he scatters them. He confuses their languages. And there's a really interesting point to be made, which is really critical to understand when it comes to having a biblical worldview of other religions. It is this, when God, excuse me, when God scattered the nations, he handed them over to other gods. 
The Bible makes this very clear. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, it says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, when did God divide mankind? In Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. That there are other spiritual beings, if you want to say lowercase g gods, God essentially is, is, is portrayed as this in Deuteronomy and the Psalms as saying, oh, you don't want to follow me? You don't want to worship me? You want to go after idols? You want to go after these splinters of broken gods like we just sang about? There you go. I'm going to choose one people group for myself, though. The descendants of Abraham, the people of Jacob, the people of Israel, they're going to be my chosen inheritance. You want to go have these other gods? Go have at it. And I'm going to work through this one people group. This one people group, however, was not faithful to the God of Israel. And so they themselves were scattered in exile. And the people of Israel eventually found themselves in exile in Babylon once again under the oppressive rulership of people who do not worship the one true God. They worship other gods. But God began to promise through his prophets, particularly prophets like Isaiah. This was our scripture reading that we saw today. God's promising that there's going to be a major gathering. You know, when God called Abraham from day one, he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that all the nations of the world will be blessed in you. And God never let go of that promise. God never turned his back on that promise. His goodness was not only for the people of Israel. His goodness was for all the nations of the earth. We just heard it in our scripture reading, Isaiah 60. The people are in exile. They're they're languishing. They're miserable. And the prophet begins to speak from God. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness covers the earth and total darkness, all the peoples, all the nations. But the Lord will shine over you and his glory will appear over you. And nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. This was the hope of the people of God, that God would use them to bring the nations back to himself, to bring him, to bring the nations out of the bondage and captivity to these rival gods. The, 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 the psalmist says that the gods of the nations are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all people need to know this. And friends, when is this prophecy fulfilled? How does God bring it to fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus, the Messiah? And he's the Messiah of the Jewish people for all the nations. Jesus shows up on the scene. And in John chapter 12, he's, he's getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting, to re- he's getting ready to face his, his execution at the hands of wicked rulers. And he says these words in John 12, 31. He says, now it's time for the judgment of this world. He says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus says, it's time for me to show that God is truly in authority over all the nations, over all the world. And he's going to do this. How? He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Do you know what's amazing about the crucifixion of Jesus? Is from a human perspective, it is the moment of just abject failure and defeat. It looks like a colossal failure. The Jesus movement has failed. 
And yet Jesus tells us that when he is lifted up, when he is high and exalted, crucified on that Roman cross, that will actually be the defeat of the ruler of this world. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He broke the power of all of these rival gods. And now all nations, Jewish and Gentile alike, are invited, Peter tells us, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus, it's interesting in John chapter 19, The Apostle John is the only one of the four gospel writers who tells us this little note. But in John chapter 19, when when Jesus is being crucified, you know, they put the sign over his head that said, the King of the Jews. And John tells us uniquely, John's the only one that tells us it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Because this Messiah is for all people. And all of the nations are going to come out of their bondage, the rulership of these false gods, these rival spiritual beings, and they will come to know and to worship the one true God who made heaven and earth. And then, after Jesus died, guess what? He rose from the dead, proving that all of his claims were true, proving that he has authority over life and death itself. And now he has ascended to the right hand of God on high, where he is ruling and reigning and he is working by his spirit, his spirit-filled people, to go out to the ends of the earth and get this message out there. We're still living in the book of Acts, church family. The gospel is still going out to the ends of the earth, that God has made us a light for the Gentiles or a light to the nations to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So God's plan has always been and will always be to have one united family that all comes in through his promised Messiah. That's what we're talking about. And by the way, that's a more compelling story, and that's a longer-lasting story than the story of religious interactions in the United States of America. The United States of America is two and a half centuries old. The gospel of Jesus Christ is two millennia old, and God has people that will last together for all of eternity where Jesus will never get voted out of office, and he will rule over all things forever. This is awesome. This is good news, right? So we have to be grounded in this story. This is, when we talk about interacting with people of other faiths, we are not talking about learning how to win a debate. We are talking about inviting people out of the rulership of rival gods. And I know that language might sound unsettling for some of you, but it's biblical. We are inviting them out of the kingdom of darkness, the ruler of this world, the false gods of the nations, to come and know the one true God who created all things and sent his son Jesus to die, to rise again, to offer us the hope of salvation. Now, I would like to spend the last few minutes we have together here just getting practical, okay? Are you guys okay if we get a little bit practical? Well, good. I appreciate that because otherwise I was just going to start playing the tambourine. I want to give you, <laughs> I could play the tambourine very practically if you'd like. Here's, here's what I, I want to give you six things, six principles to help you. Here's what I can't do today. I cannot offer you a seminar on world religions and what they all believe and, and what the differences are. I want, to, I want to empower you, followers of Jesus, to be able to have a framework within which to interact. 
And maybe the Lord will lead you to study one particular world religion more than another, one alternative spirituality more than another because of the people that God's placed in your life. I can't cover all of that in one, you know, 90-minute sermon. It's a joke. But I want to give you some principles to operate by. Principle number one is this. The differences are real. Really are real differences. Now, when I was growing up, in the 80s and the 90s, you would often hear this phrase of, well, you know, all religions basically teach the same thing. Anyone ever heard that as well? All religions teach the same thing. There's, there's one tiny problem with that statement, is it's idiotic, okay? So, uh, and even I remember being a teenager and hearing, you know, college professors or people who aren't themselves followers of Jesus be like, ah, that's actually really not very true. And what's really interesting is over the last, I'd say, decade or so, that has kind of gone the way of the buffalo, People don't say that as much anymore. People have come to realize, no, actually, there are really substantive differences. So I would just encourage you, as followers of Jesus, don't be stuck in the 90s. Just the music is fine, but the, other, like the, 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 the apologetic framework, it is not that way anymore. In fact, we have now entered into a new framework where the two choices are coexist or conquest. So the coexist is we do have differences, we do have actual substantive differences, and we could try to find a way to get along, or we can go the route of conquest, where I will make you believe what I believe. Really interesting recent development that has happened in the last year. I talked about the, the rise of the nuns, the, the people that don't adhere to one particular faith, but what is happening is that is itself becoming a faith. It is becoming a religion. And how do I know this? The yard signs that you see everywhere. What do the signs say? In this house, we believe. In historic uh, you know, religion studies, that is called a creed. A succinct statement of belief. In this house, we believe science is real, no human is illegal, black lives matter. It's really interesting. It is becoming a religion. Now, there are points of agreement with that religion that we as Christians have, and there are points of disagreement with that religion that we have. I would commend to you a book by a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin. I've listed, linked to it on our website. I have not read the book, but my wife has read the book, which means she tells me the book, so I might as well have read the book, okay? It's like having my own personal audible in my right ear, <laughs> <laughs> she says, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. That is a really, we, we can read two books in the time it takes people to read one. <laughs> also, really interestingly, I didn't, I didn't mention this, but so I walked kind of uh, up and around that way. I kind of went down, what is that, southwest in our neighborhood here. I did not see one of those yard signs. Not one. When I drive to my neighborhood, there's like six right in my immediate vicinity, including the two houses right next to me. I was doing a little bit of Googling. I did find you can get signs printed in the same kind of colorful words that is the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God the Father, maker of heaven. I don't recommend getting it. That's antagonistic, but it just delighted me a little bit to know that that was there. Okay? All that to say, back to my main point was this. There are real and substantive differences between what we believe as Christians and what people of other faiths believe. And, and we're no longer existing in this world of, well, everyone just kind of believes the same thing. No, the differences are getting real and the lines are getting sharper. Principle number two that goes right along with that, the gospel is not forced. 
The gospel is not forced. One of, one of the funnier stories, at least to me, in the gospel accounts is in Luke chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples, they go to a particular town, they preach, they proclaim the kingdom of God, and it says the people just didn't really care. Didn't, didn't respond, didn't like it, didn't care. So they get outside of the town and the disciples, you know, like, well, Jesus, probably Peter, do you want us to like, I don't know, call down fire from heaven and scorch this city? I was like, oh my goodness. And Jesus is like, no, we're going to go to the next town. Let's move on. The European failure, Holy Roman Empire, et cetera, et cetera, is to say, you will bow the knee to Jesus by the power of our sword. And there is a really strong impulse in a more fundamentalist type of faith, Christianity, in the United States of America that wants to do the same thing. We will use politics and power and courts to make people behave and think like Christians. Now, friends, hear me on this. I, I think it's good for a, law, a, a nation to have just laws and wise and even godly rulers. But Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. You do not achieve Jesus' kingdom purposes through American political means. God bless you. I, I already said I like the Bill of Rights, okay? So I'm not like, don't hear me up here. I'm like some anti-American. I don't think he likes the Constitution. No, I actually read the Constitution this last week to be prepared for this sermon. Parts of it. But friends, Jesus' kingdom does not come through the forcible sword and the power. If we just get people in positions of power, we're going to, you know, take this country for Jesus somehow forcibly. You know what we're going to do? We're going to pray for them. We're going to turn the other cheek. We're going to love them and serve them and just bless them into the kingdom of God, not force them into the kingdom of God. And honestly, when we get into the Sermon on the Mount in a few weeks here, that's what this is all about. Principle number three. Remember who the true enemy is. What does the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6? Well, we wrestle, absolutely we wrestle against flesh and blood. Is that what he says? No. He says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against what? Principalities, powers, rulers. Elsewhere, he talks about ideologies that put themselves up against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Your Muslim neighbor is not your enemy. The false God that has their mind captive to a non-Christ-centric philosophy, that spiritual being is the enemy. And that spiritual being is taken down through word and spirit, through prayer, through love, through acts of charity and service and kindness. Your yard sign neighbor is not your enemy. Your Buddhist neighbor is not your enemy. Dark spiritual forces are our enemies. And the good news is that Jesus has already defeated them. So you are free to love your neighbor, even if they have very different beliefs from you. Remember who the true enemy is. Number four. Know what they believe. Okay, show of hands, how many people here love being misunderstood or misrepresented? Good. Don't raise your hand. We as Christians do a disservice to the gospel of Jesus Christ when we misrepresent other people. 
when we don't take the time to really learn about them and study and understand what they truly believe or what they truly think. And, and friends, this is just, part of this is just the polarization of our times. This is politics, straw man, right and left. I mean, heck, it comes out in sports. Like, Lakers fans are the worst, right? Uh, right? We, we do this in, uh, in politics. We do it in sports. We do it in co- all sorts of different conversations. We do it in conversations about faith. We misrepresent, we misunderstand, we misrepresent the other. And, and friends, I mean, if, even just going back to like debate class, if you want to have a hope of having a productive conversation, even a conversation where you might be able to change someone's mind, you have to actually fairly represent them and know what they believe. The Apostle Paul did this. Again, in Acts chapter 17, he's in the Areopagus. He's in Athens. He's in this place where there's Stoics and Epicureans. They're not just all Greeks. There's actually different philosophical schools among the Greeks. And he is able to go and say, men of Athens, I see that you are very religious. And he's able to quote their poems. He's able to quote their their philosophers so that he might proclaim the gospel of Jesus to them. He did that as a great example for us to follow. Let me give you an example, friends. Uh, Mormonism. Mormonism is a non-Christian religion that uses all Christian terminology. And I have family members and and people that I'm closer to in my life who are Mormons. We love them. They are not my enemy. But it is a non-Christian religion. When you really unpack it, you can read their articles of faith. You can read their articles of confession. It sounds Christian. We believe in Jesus. We believe in the Holy Spirit. The problem is, is they define all of those words differently. Now, you know what's really not cool? Is when you talk, and I hear this all the time, talking to Mormons and then blurring them together with Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witness is a heretical version of Christianity that thinks wrongly about the divinity of Jesus the Son. It's Arianism. So Mormonism is like a whole different religion that uses all the same words. Jehovah's Witness is a heterodox or or even heretical Christian, sub-Christian sort of belief. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons do not like to be put into the same bucket. Do you know what they have the same they knock on your door on Saturday mornings and you don't want them to, okay? Other than that, it's very different. Having uh, had a conversation with a Muslim person recently, there's a lot of fear and suspicion, particularly in certain subcultures of American culture towards Muslims. I'm sitting there having a conversation with a Muslim man and he started talking to me how much he hates the jihadist representation of Islam around the world as well. Well, all Muslims are jihadists. Oh, boy. You have, you have just not walked in love towards that person if you don't understand what they genuinely believe. By the way, if you talk with some Mormons or some Muslims or some Buddhists or some Hindus, you know how we have, like, um, you know, Christmas and Easter-only Christians? Like, I really, do you really believe in Jesus? Guess what? There's, well, not Christmas and Easter Hindus, but you know what I mean, like the, the equivalent, right? Oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Buddhist, like, well, when was the last time you did any sort of practicing? It's an act of love to know what they believe, to accurately represent them. Number five, it's even more important to know what you believe. And this maybe should go without saying, but church, you need to know what the scriptures teach. 
We need the whole counsel of God's word. Let me, let me, uh, when you come to church, if you're a Christian, you hear me, other pastors, other church leaders say things like, well, the Bible says, the Bible says. That's a good thing, right? Every Sunday, I'm going to call your attention to what the Bible says. When you go out into the world to have a conversation with somebody who is not a follower of Jesus and you try to use the line, the Bible says, guess what? They don't care. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm not saying be biblically ignorant or I'm not saying don't talk about the Bible, but what I am saying is you can't just rely upon, well, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. I, you see the Apostle Paul, again, Acts 17, he was so well-versed in his beliefs that he could talk with all sorts of different people. He could talk with Jewish people who did not believe in Jesus. He could talk to Epicureans and Stoics. He could talk to sorcerers, you know, Simon the Magician. He could talk to people with all sorts of different beliefs, and he could proclaim to them the message of the gospel in different sorts of ways because he had so internalized what he had believed. And so I want to encourage you. Like, do you know the Apostles' Creed? Do you know the fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith? Do you know how to articulate the gospel to someone? And then number six, lastly, know your mission field. I said this a moment ago, but, you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, you know, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. To the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile. To the strong, to the weak. He's, He's basically saying, I just did anything I could to get the message out to anybody I could. And that's a unique calling on Paul's life where he went to all sorts of different places. You are most likely not called to travel as much as Paul did to go to as many different nations. Maybe you are. Maybe that's the mission field that God gave you. Maybe though, you have a Hindu coworker. That's, that's the one. Maybe you have a Muslim next door neighbor. Maybe you have an agnostic or atheist religious nun you know, the, the, the sign, the creed sign, neighbor. Maybe you're called to international missions to a specific nation where a large percent of the population believes differently than you. What's your mission field? What is the Lord asking you specifically to do? I would not stand up here and claim to be an expert in world religions. The, the, the one that I mentioned earlier, I have family members and other people in my life who are Mormons. So I've spent the most time studying Mormonism and the differences between Mormonism and Orthodox Christianity. I am, I've, by God's grace, started to develop some relationships with some Muslims and, and the Lord is actually doing more work in our, in our church. We hope to be able to share with you some more about one of our partner organizations that helps try to work to build bridges between Christians and Muslims. To be able to sit down over a meal and just say, look, we don't believe the exact same thing But actually, we do have a lot of overlap. How many of you know this? How many of you know that we have more in common with our Muslim neighbors than we do with our atheist neighbors? One God, authoritative text, right and wrong morality. Like, there's a lot of points of agreement to be able to say, hey, we actually actually have a lot of things in common. And then here's the parts that we disagree on. We could actually talk about it in such a way that brings just beauty to the gospel of Jesus Christ. No your mission field. Know your unique calling. Some of you are going to want to reach out and say, hey, I need some resources. I have a Buddhist, uh, you know, a client that I work with, and I'd love to be able just to take them out to coffee and say, hey, could we, could we just sit down and have coffee? Like, you believe some things. I don't actually really understand Buddhism. Could we just meet, and could I share a little bit about my faith in Jesus and, like, establish a, a common ground where we can have a conversation of, of, of one that's just based on just common humanity and common dignity, even though to say, like, I, I love you, 
And our differences are real. And I hope and pray that you would come to know and and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to force you. I can't force you. That's ungospel to force someone into that. But let's have a conversation. Let's do it for the glory of Jesus. I want to do two things as we close here. I want to do two things. I want to recite the Apostles' Creed. Why? Because I want to, okay? Because I want us to be grounded in, here's the, here's the foundations of what we believe as, as Christians. These creed signs are everywhere. We have a creed. This is the oldest known um, Christian creed, a statement of faith that, that distills that. And I want to I recite the Apostles' Creed together. And then I just want to take a few minutes before we go to the Lord's table and we just pray. And allow the Spirit to bring to mind for you people who are in your life that you have a relationship with, neighbors, coworkers, friends, family members, who have very sincerely held different belief systems from you. And I want to just pray for them. I want to pray that the Lord would soften their hearts. I want to pray that the Lord would help you to be wise and winsome in being able to share the gospel with them. So let's do this. We put the words of the Apostles' Creed up on the screen here. Uh, it's three slides long. You guys can do this. And let's, uh, let's say this out loud together, and then we'll go into a time of prayer before we celebrate the Lord's table. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. God, I pray that uh, that conviction, that creed that we just recited would be more than just words on a page or words on a screen to us. But Lord, it would be fuel in our tank to go out into a world, a very, a very unique opportunity that you've given to us, Lord, to go out into this world with the hope of the gospel Lord, may we not be combative or abrasive or or in conquest mode against the humans that we interact with, but Lord, may we go out with boldness and spiritual warfare against principalities and powers. Lord, would you give us the ability to come to a deeper understanding of our own beliefs and our own faith? Lord, would you help us as we, even right now, pray for people in our lives who believe differently from us? Spirit, would would you call these people to mind right now? Spirit, would you give us a heart of love for this person that you call to mind? Spirit, would you help us to rejoice in the gospel that we have received, that we couldn't help but just want to share it with them? Spirit, would you give us great boldness to be able to strike up conversations and interact in a way that is winsome and gracious and compassionate and truth-filled. Lord, would you help us get over that feeling of discomfort that we have, the awkwardness? 
Lord, would you give us opportunities right now to, to, to meet with and to share the good news of Jesus with these people that you're bringing to mind right now? Lord, I don't even know who all is in our hearts and minds, but Lord, for myself, one person in mind, Lord, would you soften their heart to hear the truth about Jesus? And even now, Lord, as we come to the table and we eat and drink, would you nourish us for the conversations we have ahead of us? Strengthen us in the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' good name, amen.